Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, we proudly bring to you Mormonism Live! Shut up and sit down. Good evening, everyone. How are you doing? How are you, Mr. Real? Uh, I'm doing really good, RFM. <laughs> you know, How are just, you? I, I hope everybody understands why it is we laugh when we look at each other. And the reason why is because we have to look the opposite way. Yeah. In order so for if it to I work on point, camera. I want to point at you. I got to point to my left. To point yes, to and I've got to point to my right. You see, yeah. it's so hard because... Uh, there he goes. Yeah. But Mr. Real, I understand something very exciting has been happening in Mormon discussions with some new... Uh, podcast being dropped even today is that correct yeah let's talk about that for a moment so maven put out her first uh solo content it started off with a introduction uh that was put out i believe yesterday and then today two episodes went uh out into the general public they're on our youtube channel and what maven does is she dissects the correspondence between Michelle Stone and the uh, other polygamy deniers that we were trying to coordinate a Mormonism live uh, episode where they would share their best evidence and we would share uh, our questions about that evidence and ask them uh, follow-up questions about the evidence we had shared several, I mean, maybe a couple months ago at this point. June 7th, on, actually. Yeah. And so for, for the fact that Joseph Smith did originate polygamy. It's on National Nauvoo Expositor Day. Yeah, and, and Maven did, I thought, a gorgeous job, folks. I would highly suggest. It is four hours of, I think, deeply intriguing to see how two sides perceive something going on. And I think Maven very well lays out the case that we really were trying to get to an episode and trying to act in good faith and we're being constantly misunderstood. And Maven lays out all the emails, uh, video clips from Michelle Stone, talks about her correspondence with uh, others in that group. And I think we come out looking pretty good being honest and trying to make this conversation happen in a really positive way. There are at least two major league bombshells in these episodes that I was shocked to find out about. And I think everybody's going to find them as interesting as I do. Yeah. I think we come out looking pretty good. I think you come out looking like a rose. Or is it smelling, smelling like, like a rose? Too. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So anyway, hopefully everybody, I've posted those on my Facebook page and hopefully everybody will get a chance to watch those, but not now, not now, because right now we're doing Mormonism live radio free Mormon and bill real. We've got a great show tonight. And before we introduce our guest, who we will give a lot of license to, he has a lot to say and he knows how to say it and he's qualified to say it. So I'll try and stay out of his way while he's saying it. That means I got to get a lot of comments in at the outset right? But the Book of Mormon has famously many, many anachronisms in its pages. There's barley, there's steel, there's horses, there's, um, well, there's a lot of like swine. Uh, virtually every noun in it is an anachronism. 
in some way or another. And that's been pointed out for a long time. And of course, the apologists have come back with different responses. Well, a horse doesn't really mean a horse. It means something else, of course. And a swine isn't really a swine. It's a peccary. And barley, well, you know. Oh, Wilbur. <laughs> uh, what a great show. Okay, so, but the thing is that um, our next guest is going to argue for the theory that not only does the Book of Mormon contain anachronisms, but the Book of Mormon itself is an anachronism because it does not fit in the culture from which it purports to derive. And with that introduction, can we bring onto the screen our guest, Dr. John Lundwall? Hi, guys. How are you doing tonight, doctor? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. It is great to see you. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and your experience and your training to tell uh, us what you're going to tell us tonight? Uh, you bet. Um, I, I got a doctorate from the Joseph Campbell School of Comparative Myth in California. That's where I teach. Uh, I'm the project leader of the Utah Cultural Astronomy Project. So that's a group of researchers, archaeologists, uh, rock art specialists, photographers, surveyors. We uh, look at Native American sites in Utah, especially the astronomy as related to the rock art panels. Um, founding board member of the Utah Valley Astronomy Club. We partner with state and national parks in Utah to run their astronomy programs. Uh, you know, so I lecture and, and I'm busy. That's me. Well, we thank you for making time out of your schedule. By the way, you're going to be out tomorrow night watching the supermoon. No, uh, no, I'm not out tonight. Is it tonight? Uh, tomorrow. Yeah. Okay. Tomorrow. I thought I'd missed it because um, it's very important to me. It's in Pisces, I understand. And that's my sign. Next month in Utah, we've got a partial solar eclipse. Oh, wow. So, that sounds great. Oh, uh, it's going to be fantastic. Uh, end of October. So everyone get out your uh, calendars and mark the date. I think it's the 24th, but I have to look that up. Okay. Really good. Well, can you tell us a little bit about background? Now, I just want to let everybody know there are certain building blocks that have to be understood before we leap into the connection between what Dr. Lenwell is going to talk about as it interfaces with the Book of Mormon, but even the building blocks that he's going to talk about and this area of knowledge and expertise that he has, I think are legitimately fascinating in their own right. So that's the sound of me getting out of the way, handing the floor to you, Dr. Lenwell. Uh, yeah, so look, my area of study is, um, well, compared to myth and religion, but uh, uh, it's an oral tradition. Um, you know, my my program is largely reading comparative theories, <laughs> comparative theories of this material as, you know, almost all the oral traditions are gone by the time I, I come to study it. But um uh, sure enough, it's uh, how oral cultures uh, transmit information, why myth looks the way it looks, and how that inter interrelates with modern culture. Um, and so, you know, years ago, I, I was at a, I don't really want to get into it, but uh, I was at a, uh, when I was TBM, uh, Fireside, and a religion professor at BYU was speaking, and he was asked a question, is there any myth in the Bible and he said, no, there's no myth in the Bible. If we admit myth in the Bible, we have to admit 
myth in the other books of scripture. And at the time as a TBM, I was like, well, that's idiotic. Uh, but my thought was myth is an oral product. So any oral tradition is going to produce uh, mythological material and the Bible begins in oral tradition. So sure enough, the Bible uh, will have, you know, the book of Genesis descends from oral tradition. It's full of myth motifs. Uh, which are that's a different epistemology of truth. It's not history. Um, and so my thought was I should write a paper for farms, which at the time that's what it was, or I guess, you know, this is 2000. So uh, just explaining the difference of the Mormon canon and why the Book of Mormon because uh, is started in literacy and therefore we wouldn't expect to find mythic motifs in it. And it wasn't until 2015, 16 that I actually sat down, read the Book of Mormon with my, uh, with my professional study in mind. And quite frankly, it took me about 72 hours, <laughs> 72 hours to realize uh, this is hugely problematic. I, I can't believe I hadn't sat down and done this before, but uh, uh, it's demonstrably non-historical. The Book of Mormon? Yes. What is it? When you say non-historical, what do you mean by that? It's uh, it didn't happen in history. There was no thousand year Nephite literate civilization living in the Americas um, because the Book of Mormon uh, tells us what kind of society that is. And there are certain um, information mediums that have to exist in order to produce the kind of culture the Book of Mormon describes. And those information systems and social structures can be tracked. And um when we look, we don't find them. So, well, go ahead and tell our audience what it is you're talking about, Dr. Lundwall. I'm fascinated. <laughs> uh, can we get the uh, slideshow up? Yes. All right. We're good? Yes. Okay. So, here, here's what I'm going to be talking about tonight. The greatest anachronism in the Book of Mormon is the text itself. Right. So we know uh, textual anachronisms like Deutero Isaiah. Well, every other chapter is a textual anachronism. The kind of historiography the text displays requires a specific kind of literacy that emerged in history with the development of reductive alphabetic writing systems and scholastic priests whose religious thoughts were rooted primarily in symbols and syllables as opposed to the manifestations of nature. We will be talking about that tonight. Such a cognitive model, once established, catches on wherever literacy spreads, and such a cognitive model never occurred in the pre-Columbian New World. So here's the deal, guys. I'm uh, Next slide. I'm going to um, summarize this entire presentation in this slide, just in case you hit the red button and I somehow eject off the screen at some point during this presentation. Uh, so your listeners can just hear the entire summary. And in order to do that, I'm going to read one page, and then I'm not going to read anymore. We'll just go through the slides and discuss. So here, here's the synopsis of tonight's presentation. Information mediums produce certain kinds of thought structures, which in turn produce certain kinds of social structures. One can read the Book of Mormon and accurately hypothesize the kind of information medium and social structures required to produce this text. Indeed, its historicity is written as objective narrative of sequential historic facts, 
instead of analogical, mythological, and astrological facts. Its cosmovision rests in historical truth instead of cosmic truth. And where its theology is displaced, its theology is displaced from sacred place to the individual, from sacred ritual and communal sacrifice to personal repentance rooted in solitary divine atonement. Sermons replace dances. Laws and scriptures replace the sacred tableau of cosmic place, time, and way. And every aspect of this supposed ancient civilization is seen as fully literate. There is uh, certain kinds of uh, writing systems and uh, social structures required to produce the text of the Book of Mormon. And we should be able to find that in pre-Columbian America. This world did not exist in pre-Columbia Americas, not in Central America, not in North America, not in South America. Furthermore, were it to have existed, and despite the massive construction of anecdotal evidence proffered by some Mormon apologists and scholars, such a civilization would have left copious fingerprints. We know exactly the kind of fingerprints to look for. At the top of this list is an alphabetic Semitic writing system a civilization of millions of people whose laws, commerce, religion, and preoccupation with history would produce millions of texts. And even if only 1% of that survived, then we would still have tens of thousands of scraps, bits of symbols and glyphs written on clay, stone, pottery, wood, metal, bone, painted murals and woven in textiles, interlaced with an accompanying thought world of art and literature. The complete dearth of this kind of evidence has left one leading archaeologist and anthropologist, the late Michael Coe, to write, quote, Mormon archaeologists over the years have almost unanimously accepted the Book of Mormon as an accurate historical account of the New World peoples. Let me now state uncategorically that as far as I know, there is not one professionally trained archaeologist who is not a Mormon who sees any scientific justification for believing the foregoing to be true. And I'd like to state that there are quite a few Mormon archaeologists who joined this group. The bare facts of the matter are that nothing, absolutely nothing, has even shown up in any New World excavation, which would suggest to a dispassionate observer that the Book of Mormon is claimed by Joseph Smith is a historical document relating to the history of early migrants to our hemisphere, end quote. That's all the reading I'm going to do. So, uh, look, I'm just uh, taking what Michael Coe has said, and I'm, 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 I'm doing the cultural DNA behind, behind his observations. So, so Dr. Lenwell, on the yeah. slide that you have up, as I'm understanding it, on the right is an earlier form of civilization uh, with polytheism, rituals, dances, cosmology, and agriculture. And then on the left side of the slide is a more advanced, at least in terms of uh, literacy civilization, which then concerns itself with monotheism. I, I know you'll get into that later tonight. Laws, doctrines, sermons, and history. Am I reading that slide correctly? That is correct. So this is uh, cultures operate and they are part of it is rooted in the kind of literacy that they have so the one on the right that's a mayan priest dancing and they they exist either in orality or secondary orality where if they have writing the writing is a tool that serves rituals and the cosmology 
on the left, the writing is the object of the religion. It's that which records the history and the prophecy, and that's what we read and study. On the right, the writing is a tool, secondary, even tertiary, to what they actually want to do, which is to repeat the cosmogony in a ritual cycle. So these are two completely different ways to interact with the, with the cosmos. It's two completely different set of metaphysics, uh, and they have largely different, huge, hugely different social consequences as well. So um, the Book of Mormon exists in a thought world where the text is prime, the primacy of the text. It's uh, all... Joseph Smith has a cosmovision that all religion is textual. And not only is that not true of any pre-Columbian society in the Americas, that's not true of Israelite religion at 600 BCE. I don't think that's true at the writing of the Torah. I, that takes centuries uh, for the text to become the prime thing that you read uh, as, as the prime thing that you 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 express your religiosity with. Um, and so the Book of Mormon starts out, actually page one, verse chapter one, verse three, first Nephi, Lehi has a vision where God appears reading a book. The entire cosmos is managed by text. And of course, his vision is a, you know, it, it mimics the vision of the book of Revelation where there's a heavenly book that contains all the prophecies of the world. But Lehi, Lehi encounters God reading a book. Uh, a couple chapters later, he asks his sons to go back to Jerusalem to get a book, which is anachronistic. Uh, again, the first temple period Judaism, the primacy of the religion is in the ritual, not in a text. And, and the brass plates are anachronistic. So, um, so yes. So I'm going to just jump in for a minute because this conversation is very erudite um, in terms of I think the lay audience is going to maybe struggle a little bit. One of the folks said, hey, I listened to all of your conversations on Mormonish. And I let me say it, just maybe dumb it down a little bit for folks. If I hear you right, John, what you're saying is that the way human beings from long, long time ago, when we sat around fires and and wrote on caves pictures of animals, we started off with a very minimal amount of ability. At some point, we developed the technology of language. And as we developed the technology of language, the advancement of language into complex writing is a very slow process. And we can tell by what we see around us at what stage that society is at. And the Book of Mormon text doesn't match the stage of society found in the Americas, specifically Central America, but in the Americas at this time. Damn brilliant. Good job, yeah. Bill. Thank you, Bill. <laughs> and also surrounding this is the fact that the farms crew, the um, the Mesoamerican first crowd, the ones who placed the Book of Mormon in, the, in Mesoamerica, not the Heartlanders. The reason that they go to Mesoamerica is mainly because there is only one place in North, South, or Central America during Book of Mormon times, 600 BC, 480, or CE and, well, whatever, BCE and CE, 
that thousand year period. There's only one location in all of the Americas that actually had the technology of writing. And that was among the Mayans. And so that's why predominantly they go there because obviously baseline on the Book of Mormon civilization is they have to have the ability to write because that, they're writing it down on plates, right? That is correct. You need a literate society in order for the Book of Mormon to have any chance of existing historically. And there's no place else. Nobody else has writing no during place. this time. No but the place. Mesoamericans do. And so that's, of course, where I think you're going to be focusing why you have a picture of a Mayan priest on here. And um, I'm going to let you go forward, but I also want to bring up the the standard natural responses. Well, sure, that's true of people in the Americas, but here we have a small infusion of people coming from the old world who already have this technology of being able to write and have histories and more advanced kind of things in, in written form. And they come over here and they they bring it with them. Right? Correct. Correct. So what's what is there a problem with that kind of response in your view? Yeah, they 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 bring it with them and then they build a civilization that's managed entirely by text. We're going to get into this. And as that civilization grows, uh, the texts grow with it. And not only that, it spreads to the Lamanites. Every kingdom has this writing system. And so, um, and therefore, there should be uh, intellectual consequences for that. A couple things. Bill, I apologize if that was a little bit too um, academic. Uh, that's, that's not my goal. So we're going to be done with that. I'm just summarizing the presentation on this one slide. So that's it. Uh, two, I just want to point out that preliterate peoples are just as intelligent as literate peoples. Um, preliteracy operates on the same cognitive hardware that human beings have, except they're operating on slightly different software. Orality structures thought. It's a slightly different way of thinking, and that has huge consequences. So I, I just want to make the point that people 50,000 years ago, homo sapiens, had the same mental capacity as, as we do today, but they're interacting with the world slightly differently, and that has huge consequences. And those consequences last all the way through pre-Columbian Americas in certain ways. And the Book of Mormon uh, comes from a completely literate um, construction. And it, it, it's actually worse than that. Joseph Smith's uh, assumptions of history are that it is completely literate. So uh, we'll go over that. So anyway, next slide. All right. So look, in order to enter this conversation, I, I introduce a couple basic concepts. And I'll start here with this book, uh, Understanding Medium by Marshall McLuhan, published in 1964. His central thesis is the medium is the message. People communicate with each other and we listen to each other's communications for the message. And his insight is the way we communicate is actually more important because the way we communicate, the medium of the message is what structures society all around the message. Let's take an example. Next slide. Any questions as we go along, or if you need to stop me and slap me upside the head, please do. All right, I'm going to give you a general example of a well, a watering well. Uh, click next. 
<clears throat> there's the well. Someone goes out and they dig a hole in the ground and get water. Everyone goes to the well for the water. The water is the message. Next. Click next. Next. All right. So as people start coming to the well, this is where they meet and greet each other. This is where they start sharing news of the village. Uh, the, the watering well literally becomes the water cooler. And so people go to the well uh, as a way of social interaction. And this is very literal. There was actually a village in India uh, that had been going to the watering well for centuries. And then they put in indoor plumbing and people stopped meeting at the well. And so the village elders actually tore out all the pipes and removed the, uh, re removed the plumbing to the village so that people could go back to the well. So this is just an anecdotal example of people literally gathering at the well to, to share information. Next, next point. Well, in, the, in this example, if you go to the well and you are drawing water out of it, it doesn't take long to build some troughs and bring your animals and water your animals. And while you're doing that, it doesn't take long for Larry to say, hey, Joe, how much do you want for your cow? How much do you want for your donkey? And then a marketplace is established near the well. Next point. Well, if there's a marketplace established near the well, the village chief says, I want in on the action. So he taxes the road to the well. Next point. And then this is a little more esoteric, but in ancient cultures, you built a temple or a church next to a well for ideological reasons. Almost every church in pre-Christian, I mean, early Christian Europe was built near a well and a tree because the well represented the waters of life. So not only was the well there to give water to your priests and your pastors, but it was there as as an ideological requirement for the temple or sacred space. And then the last point, uh, the content of one medium will be another medium. Well, before someone invented the well, they'd been going to this lower right picture, a watering hole. When that filled up and someone had the idea, why don't we dig our own hole and get our water? So the content of one medium is often the previous medium. The point is, you dig a hole in the ground, everyone goes to it for the water, but it's the hole that structures society around it. It creates the social interactions, it's the newspaper, it creates a marketplace, it creates systems of taxation, uh, you build your church or temple near it, it creates everything around it. So that's his idea. The medium is the message. How we communicate with each other structures all of society around it. So now let me give you an example out of history. Next slide. Next. So the printing press. Uh, this is the Gutenberg printing press. Um, invented in Europe, the 15th century. And uh, there's a, a great book, Elizabeth Eisenstein, The Printing Revolution in Europe where she goes over what happens in Europe after the printing press is invented. There's an innovation of the information medium and all of society, like the well, changes around it. So first thing that happens is the democratization of information. In manuscript culture, texts are being copied by hand in monasteries, mostly by monks. 
it's extraordinarily expensive to run a monastery. Yeah, you, you have to feed and clothe and all, all the. I mean, you, a human being is your printing press, and th that person has to be taken care of. Often, several human beings. So, as a result, there's limited number of texts that get copied. Only royalty can afford to run a monastery, to finance a monastery. That tends to mean the only royalty has the libraries. Um, and then the texts they get copied are the ones the royalty wants generally. Well, the invention of the printing press changes this dynamic. They can now, creating a text is much cheaper, it's still expensive, but it's much, much cheaper. And, and instead of taking a month or even a year to create one copy of one text, you can now create hundreds of copies in days. And so um, for cheaper. So now texts start flooding through Europe. And what happens is um, not only does royalty collect libraries, but the merchant class collects libraries. The people who can afford it, still not most people, but there is a merchant class. Universities uh, grow their libraries where you, you know, used to have 100 books. Now you've got 1,000. 5,000. And so you start comparing texts. You have different almanacs, different, you know, versions of Claudius Ptolemy's uh, geocentric cosmos. And you start comparing texts and you start seeing that not all the texts agree with one another. Uh, some are different. And then you say, well, which is right? And then you start trying to figure out which is right. And after a while, you start saying, well, maybe they're both wrong or maybe they're all wrong. And you start innovating ideas. And so um, the profusion of texts, the ease by which they're compared and the number of people comparing them, which has just increased a thousand fold, creates a new intellectual milieu throughout Europe. And this eventually creates a scientific revolution. So when the printing press is first invented, the first text they reproduce are the classical texts. Um, but a century later, we have the intellectual milieu, which produces the scientific revolution simply because enough people have compared all the classical texts, saw divergent theories, saw errors and, and copying errors even, and began correcting them and then began innovating them. And then we start getting grand new theories. And so this provides the basis for the scientific revolution. It also provides the basis for the Protestant Reformation. So, you know, um, we have uh, Martin Luther nailing his theses on the, on the cathedral wall, 95 theses, um, about the corruption of the church. Well, what he does is he uses this new medium, the printing press, to reproduce his message. And, he, and literally, first thousands, then tens of thousands, then a few hundred thousand pamphlets flood through Europe using this new medium. The church has Latin-speaking priests standing at the pulpit sharing news. That's what they have to combat, <laughs> this flood of information going through Europe in pamphlet form. And uh, as a result, I mean, it's... Am I here? All right. As a result... Um, they never really do overcome this new new innovation of medium. And so the, the Protestant Reformation is 
is uh, established, born, and, and, you know, things change. So uh, we'll go on from here. But the point is you, you innovate the way information is shared, and then your the dynamics of the church change, the dynamics of who has access to the information change, and, and new thought structures change with such as the Protestant Reformation and the Scientific Revolution. The medium by which conveys information affects how the entire society and civilization function. Correct. Yeah. All right, you follow that. Mm -hmm. Okay, next slide. All right, uh, McLuhan, when he published his book, it was actually a, a sensational book because uh, the computer was just being invented. So everyone was asking, how is the computer going to change society? That's why his book was so popular. Very few people took this idea and went backwards in time and just looked at how civilizations developed as the information mediums changed. So here I have uh, five medallions of five major methods in which societies transmitted information, their information medium. At the very right end, we have the printing press. At the very left end, we have primary orality, where there's no writing whatsoever, even a conception of writing. Now, here's the deal. You know, the Homo sapien is at least 100,000, is 200,000 years for, you know, walking upright, brain size. It's at least 100,000 years for the modern Homo sapien. We have burials at 70,000 BCE. We have art at 50,000 BCE. Uh, burials in the fetal position covered in red ochre at 50,000 BCE, indicating probably a belief in an afterlife. So we probably have 100,000 years at least of the modern sentient Homo sapien. Writing is invented at 34, 3500 BCE in the uh, Mesopotamia which means at least 98% of human history is in primary orality. And we're going to talk about how that functions, how people transmit information uh, in primary orality. But then writing's invented. And when it's invented, a lot of people assume as soon as writing's invented, everyone is thinking literate thoughts. But that isn't true. When writing's invented, the writing is a tool that serves the oral tradition. And so the oral tradition is still primary. The Mayan priest is still dancing to his sacred calendar, to his agricultural cycle, performing his rituals, right? That, that's still happening after the invention of writing. We call this period secondary orality because there are things that change with the introduction of writing. The city-state and writing emerge together. So when you have urbanization of populations, uh, you first off, you need agriculture because you, you have to feed now thousands of people living in your city-state as opposed to 100 people living in a village. Well, thousands of people doing thousands of chores uh, being led by now, no, one chief isn't going to cover all of that. You need administrators. Writing becomes... A, a very um, useful tool in which to administer the social state. And most of the early texts 
are this kind of writing. They're economic writings, their receipts, their inventories, their contracts, their trades. Um, the religious writing in the Bronze Age is ritual writing. That is, the writing serves as is a tool that serves a ritual cycle. So when we read the writing, much of it doesn't make sense. It's mythological. And if, if you read myth, you're like, what the hell are these people doing? <laughs> this, this doesn't make sense. Uh, it sounds like gibberish. Well, that's because we've lost the context. The, the, the writing is like a prop list to a play. And the play is the ritual. And that's what they're doing. And, and the text is, you know, it's uh, interpreting the pyramid texts or even for the, the best trained Egyptologists, they can't tell you exactly what's going on. They can just give you a word-to-word -word translation and say, oh, work it out on your own. <laughs> so um, that's secondary orality. Now, look, things develop during that. Social complexity, empire. When you, when you have... I see I keep going in and out. Am I, am I good? You did just for a second there, but otherwise you've been good. Okay. Um, with writing... Uh, they start networking city-states, and you create empire, which is several cities being governed by one centralized government. Writing enables that. You get massive megalithic constructions. The pyramids and the ziggurats of Egypt in the Near East occur after writing. And you have to think all the labor, trade, uh, materials that have to be managed in order to build those projects uh, are aided with writing. And so when writing emerges, you start getting uh, more complex, bigger social systems, bigger cities, empires, bigger buildings, pyramids. And, and so that's an outflow from uh, writing. You also get, you know, you, you get astrological canons, you get uh, more advanced mathematics. So things are happening with the introduction of writing. However, in the religious sphere, everything is still ritual. Then in the second millennium BCE, there's a innovation. It's like the invention of the printing press, but in the ancient world. And that's the invention of an alphabet. Now, the alphabet is just an innovation of the older writing system. The older writing system is picture writing, logosyllabaries. You have a picture of a thing that represents a word or thing. And then they use the picture to represent a sound. And so some of your symbols represent words and concepts, and some of them represent syllables. These early writing systems are logosyllabaries with hundreds of symbols. Egyptian has eight, 900 symbols. Mine has eight, 900 symbols. Chinese has 10,000 uh, symbols. Um, you know, by the way, the Chinese invented a printing press a thousand years before the Europeans, but they never had a scientific revolution. Uh, and one proposed reason for that is their writing system was thousands of symbols. The European writing system was an alphabet. It's 24 symbols. Very easy to learn, very easy to transfer. Once, you're, once, once you've reduced your writing system to just a couple dozen symbols. Uh, instead of 5% of your population taking years and decades learning how to write, you now have 10, 20% of your population 
learning to write, that ends up being a tipping point and your, your civilization starts being managed by texts. So, um, so we have this innovation. Then we get the invention of the book, the codex, and then the printing press. So I'm not going to stay here. Any questions? This is across all cultures. Is that correct? Yes, across all cultures. And I'll just note, I mean, when human beings increase or invent the technology of new sounds for, you know, to create new words, like the ability to nuance a conversation or the ability to convey an idea that isn't just a symbol that you have to kind of generally figure out what something means, you're adding such complexity to the society and its ability to communicate to each other complex information the further along to the right this this uh, development goes. Yeah, uh, syllable writing occurs really, er I mean, it occurs really early because you have to write foreign words uh, using syllables, right? And um, names, proper names are, are used using syllables. Um, but the alphabet does something it takes centuries for it to do it, but it does something new. We're, we're going to get to it in the next couple of slides. So next slide. All right. So this is primary orality. How do oral cultures, I'm going to try to go through this pretty quick, but how do oral cultures without writing transmit information? And what orality is a well that produces certain cultural artifacts. What are those artifacts that are produced by orality? Well, you know, first off, we have to admit there, there are fundamental features of primary orality that are lost. You know, I think literately, you think literally, some of these features are permanently lost. The scholars who study this understand they're permanently lost. So this is our best attempt at um, sort of analogically figuring out how they, how they do this. But look, if you don't have any writing, your referent of meaning, the thing you think about is what you observe in nature. Your primary referent of meaning is what you observe in nature. Nature has two parts. It has the sky and the ground. <laughs> and for the longest time, we forgot about the sky part. But oral peoples, oral peoples will, are very observant. They are, they have an amazing awareness of the natural environment around them. Uh, amazingly so. I mean, uh, Utsi, the Iceman, you know, that cadaver that was found in, in the Alps. Uh, they did a CSI autopsy on him. He dates to about 3500 BCE. He had like 26 different plant fibers in his uh, dress, in his, his, his tunic, his pants. Uh, and each one of them was utilized for a special reason that this stitch for this reason, that for that reason. I mean, so they have this very, uh, they have to survive in nature. So they're very observant, very rational, but what ends up happening is oral peoples think analogically. This is part of the software of orality. So what, what, what's this mean? Well, you're a hunter and the herds come in into a valley that you want to hunt them in. But they come in seasonally. So you have to watch which season they come in. Well, what? how do you do that? Well, the sun is on this position on the horizon when the winds change, and that announces the new season, and that's when the herds are in the valley. 
And right before the sun rises, there's a star that rises heliacally. And that rises at the changing of the wind, at the changing of the season, at the migration of the animals. And so they connect all those manifestations of nature. The star, the position of the sun, the wind, the season, the migration of the animals. Okay? Now, in order to pass all that knowledge down, they personify that. The star is a deity. The wind is a deity. The season is a deity. Everything is personified. And you then create a ritual. And the ritual really is an instruction on how to remember all this, right? You're, you're going to, as soon as that star rises, create, uh, do a hunting ritual and then go do the hunt. Okay. Well, what this, what happens then is orality produces polytheism. Polytheism is a product of oral thinking. Because if your primary referent of meaning is what you observe in nature, then all the principles of nature get personified into a pantheon. So the so polytheism is a product of orality. What oral cultures want to do is they want, it's a big word, cosmological attunement. They want to copy what nature is doing. So when that sun appears on this part of the horizon, that's the time I germinate my seeds. And when it moves to that part of the horizon, that's the time I plant my, clear my fields and plant my seeds. And when it moves to that part of the horizon, that's the time I harvest. And when it moves to this part of the horizon, I do all my rain ceremonies because I need rain. Okay. And so they're, they're watching the sun move across the horizon and then doing their agricultural ritual with it. And all of this is ritualized. Well, they think the star that rises before the sun and the moving of the sun, those are divine powers which cause the plants to grow. Oral cultures are astrological. Astrology is simply, hey, the star rose, the winds changed, the animals came. That star caused the animals to come. So oral peoples think astrologically. Makes sense? So, um, well, look, if that star rises when the sun rises and that's when my plant starts growing, I want the fertility of that plant for other reasons. What if I want to be reborn in the next life? I'm going to do a ritual attuned to the rising of that star when it causes that plant to rise in a religious ritual that will help me be reborn in the afterlife. So they start analogically copying in ritual the things that are happening in, happening in nature. Uh, and so not only are they doing this for really practical reasons, agriculture, hunting, right? They're doing it for religious reasons, rebirth, uh, warfare. If I want to be a successful in war, I'm going to perform a ritual in line with some cycle of the sun, moon, or stars, or some cycle of the of the land that's going to maximize my ability to win the battle. Okay, and so everything is ritualized. Um. So, the human being has several different layers of memory. So, if you don't have writing, you are going to create all the information you need to pass down in as many layers of memory as you can.
so there's oral memory. If you hear, it's very easy to repeat something that you hear. If you sing a song, you can remember the lyrics of the song easier if you sing it. Oral cultures are singers and chanters. Uh, they sing and chant almost everything because uh, even indigenous languages have a lot of vowels. They're very sing-songy. You chant and you sing with them. And uh, that's baked into the to what they're doing, what they're saying. So there's oral memory, there's narrative memory. So you've personified all the principles of nature, but now you got to pass that information down. I got to you know teach the next generation about the star and the winds and the sun and the herds and then the agriculture. So you create narratives that use all those uh, personifications. And your narratives often are filled with oversized events, creatures, heroes, gods. Uh, for one reason, they're easier to remember. If, if you tell a tall tale, it's easier to remember than if you listen to a general conference talk. So uh, narrative memory is wed to oral memory, wed to ritual memory, which is you repeatedly do something. So you're repeating all these things in different mediums um, as a way to pass it down. And the more mediums you have, the, the greater the chance there is to keep the information intact. Just to throw something in here yes. offhand, Bill and I have both found out that some general conference talks themselves do contain tall tales. <laughs> Thank you. <A> few. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> remember that ensign ensign blair <laughs> oh gosh yes you remember the name god so, we'll have a tale to tell I, you lads but, hey so are those the ones you remember yes because we've dismantled them <laughs> okay well so you're right you they're go. the ones that you remember the so stories the ones the you remember tales. have the tall tells yes it's very hard to remember uh a conference talk out of the pool of cerebral fluid and on the floor in front of you so anyway <laughs> um Look, they do all this. They watch, uh, they, they watch the cycles of the sky. They tell their narratives. They do their rituals. Generally, in most cultures, in a sacred place. There's a sacred loci. And in fact, the place is as important as everything else. And this is definitely true in Mesoamerica. The place is as important as the ritual. So, um, so that's your temenos and your temple. So you have... All of uh, these patterns, the cosmology, the myth, the ritual, and the temenos that are interlaid with each other, this is how oral cultures pass down information. I promise you we'll get to why this is important. <laughs> it, it, it really is, without writing, without being able to put words on paper, this is how you tell the next generation all the bylaws, all the all the ways in which we run our society. It's, it's how we tell people what what is right behavior and wrong behavior. It's how we tell people uh, what the rules are and, and how we go about. Uh, it, it tells everything. Like the stories are everything to this culture. The rituals involved in those stories are everything to this culture. We are autonomous uh, narrative creating beings because we've been doing this for tens of thousands of years. And uh, it's just important to note that these old stories are 
related to rituals and related to larger environmental cycles of the above and below. So this is uh, the public school system. Yes. Right here. Yeah. And it's your church. This is religion. Yeah. You're looking at the religion for tens of thousands of years, actually all the way into early Christianity. So the, what you know, we'll get to it. Next slide. All right. So here we have um, the invention. That, the previous slide was primary orality. This is secondary orality. So we have texts, and those texts are um, increasing social complexity, building bigger cities, building empires. This is a picture I took in the Pyramid of Unis. This is the first time the pyramid texts appear in the pyramids. So this is uh, 2300, 2350 BCE. This is the first time we see texts in the pyramids. I'm in the West Chamber. The sarcophagus is behind me. Here's all the texts. Well, what are the texts? Are the texts a history of all the previous kings, the prophecies? Uh, do they tell me about uh, the fall, the atonement of Jesus Christ, and how I'll be reborn in the next life? The texts are ritual episodes and cosmological scenarios. The texts are astronomical. Now, we just went over why that would be. Uh, when a certain star rises on the horizon, things change on Earth. And then they analogically say, if I get the power of that star, I'm going to then receive the boon of that star. So if I ritualize that in an afterlife ritual, I, I have a greater chance of being reborn in the afterlife. It's more complicated than that. But all these texts are rituals that are mythologized and cosmologized. That's what we get in the pyramid text. That's what we get in the coffin text. That's what we get in the Book of the Dead. That's what we get in Egyptian religious writing um, pretty much th through its whole history. Are those stars I see on the interior ceiling of this yes. chamber? Yes. Uh, so the, the there's three chambers and... The antechamber in the sarcophagus chamber has stars on the ceiling. It tells you where you're at. You're going. So the underworld is in the sky and the upper world is in the sky. And your goal is to ascend to the northern circumpolar stars to, to become a god in Osiris. So my point here is that as we go through the religious literature of the third millennium BCE, of the second millennium BCE, and of most of the first millennium BCE, we find parallel patterns. The Vedas, uh, scholars early on recognize that many of the passages in the Vedas uh, only make sense if they're being performed by two or more dramatis personae, actors in a ritual play. Uh, the ancient Near Eastern texts, the Baal cycle, the Epic of Gilgamesh are filled with mythological motifs that relate to ritual episodes, also cosmological episodes. Hesiod's creation story, the, the creation story of the early Greeks, it begins with the muses singing and dancing in a ritual as they tell the creation. And it tells you that these texts originally were sung and danced in ritual. Greek plays, uh, you know, the Bacchae of Euripides comes right out of the mystery rituals. And then um, 
we get one major history in Mesoamerica, the Pulp of Vu. It's written very late. It's actually written after European contact when the Mayan priests no longer have access to the sacred place where they watched the cosmos, danced and told their narratives and passed down, passed down their information. That so sounds then, like what happened with the Jewish people after the Babylonian conquest. Yes, we're going to get into that. So, so they wrote down the history of the Mayan people, and, and it begins with the creation story. And what is it? It's cosmological and ritual. The, it's, it belongs in this thought world. And they're writing this in 1500 CE, right? So all through this time, pre-colonial contact, pre-Columbian contact, uh, Mesoamerican cultures live in the world of the previous slide. Their their look their primary reference is still the principles of nature, which they're uh, analogizing in narrative and ritual at a sacred place. The texts, the Mayan texts, are a tool that serves that thought world at all periods of pre-Columbian history. Okay, all right. Next slide. I I just threw this in because. Um, Here's an example. Here are, all, here are many of the plates Mormon apologists use to say, hey, we found writing on gold plates, and this verifies the veracity of the Book of Mormon being written on gold plates. And you can look at all the examples they use, and it turns out all the texts on these plates are rituals. They're not the kind of text you get in the Book of Mormon. The Darius place is a plate on the bottom right is a dedicatory ritual. The Pergi plate, a dedicatory ritual. The Etruscan Book of the Dead, an afterlife ritual. The Silver Scroll, a prayer amulet ritual. They're all ritual texts. And so every example the apologists have used to say, hey, here, here is proof that the Book of Mormon exists is actually an example that doesn't work. Because these texts are being are secondary. They're being used for rituals. Whereas the Book of Mormon is a history. It's a completely different cognitive envelope. It's a completely different way of looking at the cosmos, where truth is historical as opposed to cosmological. Okay? So, next slide. Just real quick. the And uh, what happens, it takes a long time for this to happen. But what happens is your, your alphabet is just re, really reductive symbols. The old symbols were pictures, right? And they referred to something that you saw in nature because for tens of thousands of years, your referent of meaning was what you saw in nature. Well, the alphabet gets abstracted to just abstract symbols. And you only need to learn a couple dozen of them. And so instead of going out to the sacred place to look at the star and, and the seasonal winds and the herd coming in, you're now passing down information by abstract symbols, no longer out in nature, uh, in a text. That is not happening. Largely, that's not happening uh, before alphabetic writing. And it takes centuries after the invention of the alphabet for this to take hold. But eventually... This adds a layer of abstraction in human thinking. 
because now you have a, a, a level of thought between what you observe and your thought. You have an abstract symbol and you, you begin thinking in symbols instead of what you see in nature. And just that starts, you start playing and innovating ideas in your head as opposed to watching what's happening in nature. This creates new levels of abstraction, which ultimately, as people like Walter Ong and Eric Havelock have noted, the Greek revolution, we get Pythagoras and Plato and Parmenides. These are philosophical schools, and they're calling this the literate revolution. Carl Jaspers calls it the axial age, where everything starts changing, and the old religious structures that are communal, that are ritual, that are astrological, you get in the middle of the first millennium BCE, new religions, Buddhism, Jainism, Zoroastrianism, Confucianism, and they're all individual ethical systems. They're no longer communal systems attached to the cosmological cycle. They're now about inner enlightenment, personal enlightenment, um, uh, moral ethics. This is a big transition. And it's and in part, that's because the medium of the message has changed, right? People are thinking textually. And so they start thinking interiorly as opposed to the things in nature. And then it's a, it's a new level of morality that gets created with that. Make sense? All right, next slide. Okay, so to sum up, oral people mythologize history. Imagine having no text. How do you tell history? Right? Uh, so our histories are objective linear histories where so-and-so did so-and-so, so-and-so said something to so-and-so. So A leads to B, leads to C, creates D, which leads to E, right? How do you manage all that information without writing? And the answer is you don't. Oral peoples don't write histories the way we're used to history, linear objective history, okay? Oral peoples mythologize history. They're not, for them, truth is not historical fact. Truth is cosmic fact. It's the star rising on the horizon that brings in the herds. So, if they're going to tell a history, they might tell of the first man or woman who founded the village that saw the star in the herds. But the story is going to be about the star in the herds, right? It's it's and, and, and it might have some historical content to it. To them, truth is cosmic fact. This is important. The Bible, the book of Genesis, begins in oral tradition in this thought world. So when we read the creation, the flood story of the founding story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we actually, oh, this has been transliterated from an oral tradition to a literate tradition, and out of it, we've dropped the ritual, the cosmology, and we've turned it all into history. And so this creates a huge amount of problems, which Jews and Christians have been dealing with ever since. So oral peoples mythologize history, literate peoples historicize myth. We take the old stories and we turn them into historical biographical accounts when they never were that. And even though they can have historical data in it, that was not their primary 
message. So to world people, truth is cosmic fact. To literate people, truth is historical fact. It's important because, again, in pre-Columbian Americas, truth is cosmic fact. Truth is not historical fact. This is going to be a problem here shortly. Next slide. Um, all right. So, look, one of the things orality produces is polytheism. Polytheism is a natural product of orality. Well, when you abstract um, all the principles of nature into reductive alphabetic print, you no longer have to personify all the principles of nature. You can simply say, the divine does all of that. I can record it in the alphabet in front of me, and I can re reference it by reading it as opposed to going out and passing all the information down through observation. Over time, you have a monistic tendency anyway of there's one divine source out of which all the divine pantheon emerges. Over time, this can be solidified into monotheism. So while orality produces polytheism, literacy produces monotheism. Monotheism is simply the divine principle abstracted out of nature. And you use a text to do that. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Also, with literacy comes historicism. This is when we start keeping track of history as history, as objective linear facts. That doesn't happen in the Bronze Age. Even with writing, they're in secondary orality. The, the writing is a tool for the oral tradition we don't start getting history making, you know, in the West, really, that's Herodotus, who's the father of history, Livy, Tacitus. That's a very late Roman period. We don't have a, a Greek writer. Herodotus goes out and he just asks people their opinion of what's going on. He's, he, he's not recording history from other texts. Uh, the Book of Mormon is a history recorded from multiple texts, okay? So uh, the first time we get a Greek historian recording history, as far as I know, that's the first time we get that, by citing other texts is the late 4th century BCE. But we don't really get historiography as we're used to it until the late Roman period. Um, and so there you go. Uh, textual literacy is creating monotheism and historicism. All right, next slide. Okay, so now let's bring this down into the world of the Book of Mormon. How am I doing on time? Are we okay? You're doing great. This, I think, is one of the most significant slides you have to me. Okay, well, here I'm just going to take everything I just talked about and put it on a timeline. 3,400 BC, oh, so my bottom line there, 100,000 BCE, earliest modern Homo sapiens, probably earlier than that. Um, 3,400 BC, the invention of writing, you know, plus or minus a century or so, uh, and today, okay? 3,400 BCE, we are in secondary orality. This slide is the, the evolution of the word, how we uh, think of the divine. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God. The word was God. It's actually a very old idea. 
you know, the Shabaka stone. Uh, the world is created by the word, the God word. Uh, Ptah thinks of the word and then speaks the word out of his mouth and creation emerges. It's a very old idea in multiple cult cultures. The, the, the world being created by the word also exists in Mesoamerica. Well, 3400 BCE, the divine is oral. So everyone in that world is practicing the divine by watching the nature, by watching the sun, moon, and stars, by uh, repeating it in ritual, dance, uh, mythological narrative from a sacred center. Okay? This, there is no history writing. Not the way we write history. Uh, there's king's lists. There's victory stelas. The religious literature is ritual. Cosmology. It's that oral paradigm. Well, we have a problem because uh, the book of Ether is the brother of Jared is uh, contemporary with the Tower of Babel, which is a mythological construct. So that's also a problem, but it's dated around 2300 BCE, which is contemporary to the first pyramid text that I just showed you, right? That religious, the word in that world are the pyramid texts. They're astronomical, astrological. I keep going out. I think that's Satan trying to knock me out. So um, the uh, Book of Ether is a objective linear history uh, that records the entire history of the world from the creation to the last generation in a period where that kind of writing never existed. Okay. It does have a king's list, though. Does have a king's list. That's and actually, right. in a strange twist of fate, according to what you're saying, the mention of the Tower of Babel in the Book of Ether actually would be a sign of ancientness, if that's all it had. Am I getting you right? I uh, the Tower of Babel um, because it's myth. In other words, in other words, the Book of Mormon should have been a cosmological text, and if it just said the story of the Tower of Babel, that would make sense. But yes. when it tells a history of prophet handing thing down to prophet, down to prophet, it then uh, jumps the shark. Bill's very good. He's following every word I'm saying. Good job. That's exactly correct. Don't sound so surprised. But. <laughs> No, that's a, <laughs> yeah, yeah. These are, you know, I, I don't know. These are um, complex concepts. So, I've, just uh, FYI, I mean, folks, I think get a little bit of like a primer on this by reading things like *Sapiens* by Yuval Harari, understanding how human beings went from an ancient pre-Homo sapien species to being a modern society, and recognizing all the little shifts and moves that it takes to get there. Yeah, it's a good book. So, um, so look, the book of Ether is like an iPhone in the hand of Abraham Lincoln. It is completely anachronistic. It does not belong in history where it says it is. It doesn't belong in the Book of Mormon. There's no text written like that ever in that era. And so what's it doing there? How does it get there? How, how does an, the entire history of the world get recorded in 24 gold plates 
um, it's it's deeply problematic. Well, it gets worse because uh, by 600 BCE, this is where the Book of Mormon starts. Um, we're in First Temple Judaism, where the word is still ritual. the The First Temple is where they are doing their dances, doing their sacrifices, watching the stars. It's it's that thought world that's still happening. Okay, the religion isn't textual yet. And yet we have the brass plates. The brass plates already exist. And it's a history, just like the book of Ether, from the creation down to the writings of Jeremiah, which is when Lehi lives. Well, the brass plates are anachronistic. The book of Ether is anachronistic. That doesn't belong there. The brass plates is anachronistic. That doesn't belong there. Uh, by 400 BCE, we have the word is Torah. So here is a huge transition. One of probably my assessment, the biggest reason why monotheism emerges in Judaism is because their state and their temple, which is the same thing, gets destroyed. You know, their king, their kingship, their priestly caste, either wiped out. Some of them are transported into Babylon. The people are enslaved and dispossessed of their land right? Dispossessed of their sacred place, of their temple, of the way they pass down information for generations. So now you're in a foreign land growing somebody else's crops. How do you, um, how do you keep cultural integrity in, or for that matter, political power? Assuming some people there still want to keep uh, cultural unity with the people and political power with the people. How do you do that with everything being destroyed and you being dispossessed? Well, they make a radical decision. And that is they turn their religion from the sacred place, sacred time, sacred ritual to text. Because that makes it portable. They're no longer there at the in Jerusalem. So when you write the Torah... Now you carry the Torah wherever you go. And so that becomes a way for a people who are displaced out of their land, out of their culture, out of their religion, because the religion is that previous thought world, right? Uh, that becomes a way for you to carry your religion with you. So they turn it into a text. That happens about 400 BCE, um, but it still takes couple centuries for a lot of that to stick for monotheism to stick and so um the book of mormon assumes that all these transitions have happened from day one in order for monotheism to stick you need you need a politically dis both judaism and christianity are politically dispossessed people and they make the religion textual so that they can carry it around with them and 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 therefore the religion um, becomes private, personal, related to a personal God. It's not political. It's not communal. It's not ritual because they can't do that. And so of necessity, they have to make this transition and the transition changes everything. It makes religion textual. Zero CE, the word uh, becomes flesh, becomes a personal deity, right? Now, Yahweh wasn't a personal deity. 
Jesus is a personal deity. 400 CE, the word is canonized. I mean, we forget that turn of millennium, there were over 72 different sects of Judaism in Jerusalem. They weren't even reading the same text. The common denominator was the Torah. But after that, you know, it's, it's a wide variety of different traditions, beliefs, and texts. Um, and the same is true for early Christianities. So uh, we, we get the canonization of scripture at 400 CE. And what that does is it makes people think that there is a set group of sacred texts belonging to a, a set private deity in Christianity that is the individual atoning sacrifice and that we access this deity through the set of canonized texts. Religion is fully textual, personal, individual. It's been decoupled from nature, from temple, from the sacred place. Okay? The Book of Mormon assumes all this has happened at 600 BCE because we get that personal, individual, textual religion with 1st Nephi. But it hasn't happened at 600 BCE. It's just starting at 600 BCE. Um. And then, of course, as we go through, we forget also that canonizing scripture, that, that took a long process. And then reproducing scripture, right? Every church had to have its own Bible. And that had to be hand copied by monks out of a monastery. And it turns out it took them centuries to start making manuscript rules. The period was invented 7th, 8th century B, uh, CE. The comma was invented about the same time. By 1000 CE, they had developed a long list of copy rules to produce an inerrant text. That is, a copy of a Bible that was error-free. And that got them thinking in, hey, the, the Bible is inerrant. It's a perfect text because we have created all the rules to make a perfect text. Well, over the next few centuries, that gets people thinking the Bible is, is the perfect word of God, the inerrant word of God uh, through this process. The Protestant Reformation, they decouple themselves entirely from traditional authority, traditional ritual, traditional mass. Um, and so... All of the authority of the religion rests in a text which they read as history. At this point, truth is historical. They have entirely forgotten the oral tradition. And so the book of Genesis now is a literal history and the Bible is inerrant. This slide is just showing you that there is a slow evolution over time where these concepts get adopted into Christianity by the Great Awakening, the Bible is taken literally, historically, and inerrantly, uh, at least among many sects of Christianity, the evangelicals especially, and the Mormons. Well, the point is, the Book of Mormon Cosmovision of the religion being textual, individual, associated with atonement, decoupled from place, time, space, ritual, the Book of Mormon Cosmovision is post-Protestant Reformation. <laughs> so so um, what we can say is a tight translation is impossible. Literally, 
the text is a 19th century Christology. It's a 19th century historiography. It's a 19th century version of religion. And uh, it, 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 it's out of place in the ancient world. You follow? I'm following you. Yes. All right. Next slide. All right. So once we understand that, we can look at the assumption that Joseph Smith has of history and of religion. Would you say that again? You cut out for just a moment. Start this over. And once we understand that, we can now look at Joseph Smith's assumptions of history and religion. And they're embedded in what he writes. And so let's just go over it. Moses, Pearl of Great Price, chapter 6. We read that Adam, the first man who he takes literally, Adam is a historic fact, not a cosmic fact. Adam in Genesis is, is clay. He's not the first human being. He's the archetype of humanity out of which humans will emerge. Adam is a cosmic fact originally. Well, now he's been made a historic fact. Adam and his posterity are literate. They read and write and keep a record in the language of Adam, which is the perfect language, and hand it down from generation to generation. So Joseph Smith assumes that literacy goes back to the first time, to the very first human being. It doesn't. Um, uh, not not even close. But then it gets worse. The brother there, there's, yes. there's two anachronisms here, right? One is that by no means is it even possible that Adam would have been literate to write and keep records, <laughs> nor correct. should the record be recording that Adam should be writing and keeping records. Damn, Bill is on fire tonight. I gotta, I gotta take you with me on the road. Let's do it. <laughs> I'm not cheap. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Well, I am. <laughs> all right. Um, all right. That, that, that is correct. So, but it's also correct with the brother of Jared. The brother of Jared is fully literate. He writes a history of the world from creation to the end thereof and passes down the record from generation to generation. Notice the records are kept generation to generation from the first generation all the way until we get the Book of Mormon peoples. This is necessary for Joseph Smith, Ether 1 through 4, Abraham. By the way, let me correct myself for a second, yeah. because I mentioned in the book of Ether about their reference to the Tower of Babel or Babel yeah. as being a reference to a myth. But it is a myth. But the problem, I think, really is that they're referring to the myth as historical. That's correct. This is where they came from. Right. So uh, that's an anachronism. Right. So it does have so, the same problem, even yes. though it references a myth. The That's correct. The Tower of Babel is a mythological episode, an ideological myth. It's not history, but Joseph Smith reads it as literal, historical, inerrant history. Um, so that's the thought world he's working in, and all of his scriptures mimic that thought world. And that's a real problem if you claim to be writing an ancient record in the previous thought world. Mm -hmm. It's a real problem. And I'm so, sorry I interrupted you. You were about to get to Abraham. Yeah, well, it's the same thing. Abraham holds the written records of the patriarchs from the creation down until his time, same as Adam and the brother of Jared. He writes and records his history to pass down from generation to generation. There's the reference. The brass plates. So that, again, first temple Judaism. 
contain a record of the Jews from the creation down to the reign of Zedekiah, the, the Torah. I mean, it contains the Torah. <laughs> to the first five books of Moses, the brass plates contain. That, <laughs> that's this isn't just <laughs> unlikely. This is absurd. Yes. Yeah. It's a statistical zero. Yeah. I mean, I, I you know you can't speak in certainties. It's a ninety nine point nine percent improbability. Yeah, with um, nines going to the right of the decimal a hundred more times. <laughs> right. Yes. Contains a record of the Jews from the creation down to the reign of Zedekiah uh, from generation to generation. So we have Adam, the brother of Jared, Abraham, brass plates from the beginning of time all the way down to Lehi Nephi. Every prophet is literate, keeps a record, and the religion is a is literacy. It's kept by a written record. We know about it. It actually gets worse. Let's go to the next slide. All right. I promised I would not do any more reading. So, RFM, can you read? Nephite and Laman civilizations are fully literate. And this is a special kind of literacy. It's not the literacy that serves ritual and cosmology. It's the kind of literacy that writes history and develops monotheism. Okay? So, we actually know exactly what kind of writing system we need for that. A Semitic alphabetic system. Which, by the way, is what the Book of Mormon tells us that they're writing in. So, so that that's pretty simple. But look, look at the kind of record keeping they have. Can you read that RFM Helaman three? 13 through 15. Yes. Yeah. And now there are many records kept of the proceedings of this people by many of this people. Hmm. But behold, a hundredth part of the proceedings of this people, <clears throat> yea, the account of the Lamanites and of the Nephites and their wars and contentions and dissensions and their preaching and their prophecies and their shipping, and their building of ships, and their building of temples, and of synagogues, and their sanctuaries, and their righteousness, and their wickedness, and their murders, and their robbings, and their plundering, you and all manner crap. of abominations and whoredoms, <laughs> cannot be contained in this work. But behold, there are, there are many books, and many records of every kind, and they have been kept chiefly by the Nephites. Yes. Mm. So... Look, I have, uh, there are over 140 mentions of record keeping, 117 mentions of writing. Every aspect of Nephite civilization is kept in text. Can uh, I mention another commerce? thing that I, I'm so yeah. sorry, John, that I found that I thought was interesting in Mosiah 2. This is where uh, King Benjamin's getting up on the tower and giving his sermon. Yes. We all know about King Benjamin's discourse, right? Yeah, and he spreads his speech in writing, right? Right. Yes. So chapter 2, verse 8, and it came to pass that he began to speak to his people from the tower. They could not all hear his words because of the greatness of the multitude. Earlier it says there were so many they couldn't even number them. And they wouldn't even all fit in the temple precincts. Therefore, it goes on, second half of verse 8, he caused that the words which he spake should be written and sent forth among those that were not under the sound of his voice, that they might also receive his words. So this sounds to me more than even just a priestly class that is literate. It sounds like the literacy is wider than that and more widespread. The Book of Mormon assumes the society is literate. The apologists will argue, oh, no, it's just a small class of people. Well, guess what? Um, you've got a uh, monotheistic individual atonement personal deity 
that develops through alphabetic writing, through displacement of sacred place. I mean, all those things that have to happen in order for that to be created. It's completely anachronistic. But as you read the Book of Mormon, just with literacy in mind, you discover their religion, their commerce, their politics, their laws. Everything is textual. It's all kept in text. For that to happen, you, you're go, your civilization to compare yourself to is something like Rome. Rome was managed by text, but, you know, by the late Roman period in urbanized cities, you had probably 20 percent, maybe 30 percent of the people that were literate. OK, well, that's all you need. If you get 20 percent, your civilization is being managed by text. And um, the Book of Mormon reflects a civilization that's entirely textual. The religion is in, that's my next slide is entirely textual. And so um, as a result, we should be finding tens of thousands of texts. I, when, when you get so Rome, they produce millions of texts. Only one percent of it survives. And that gives us tens of thousands of examples. Again, so the, is the problem is the problem that even if the Book of Mormon people, the Nephites were in and around or identical with, I know there's a lot of fudging that goes on with the apologists, but the Mayan civilization, the one that has writing, that if they were there and if it really was a, a civilization that was representative of what we have in the Book of Mormon, we would expect to have at least one other historical text that had been found, if not thousands. Not only would we expect that, I actually that's necessary. You need to show that. If, if you're going to claim the Book of Mormon is a historical text, you have to show that. Um, if you don't show that, then get off the stage. But it's more than that. Um, in fact, let's read the other. Uh, can you remove your? Yeah, I can get rid of this. I just want to say it's not that we're imposing anything. The Book of Mormon imposes just by the scripture that RFM you know, found this week and the ones that we just showed before it specifically this one, the entire King Benjamin takes it for granted that he can write his sermon down. He can have his scribes write it down and pass it out to everybody as they've got their temples facing him, their, their tents facing him. And everybody's going to be able to understand the sermon because it's written for them. It is a literate society. And what we, what you're asking people to believe is that this entirely literate society doesn't write it on anything. That, yeah. that makes it to this moment. There's not a single thing, not a piece of pottery, not a, not a shard, not a, not a relic, not a, and even if it was just a priestly class, by the way, we ought to note that when we find items from other civilizations, as you pointed out in the very beginning, the church is the center of town. The church is in charge of maintaining the art. The church is in charge of maintaining the records. The church is uh, in charge of, uh, it's the only thing that has the money to invest in having things created and made. So the things that do make it down through history that are connected to religion should have writing on them from the priestly class. And what we find in the Book of Mormon is nothing. This is why Michael Coe says, I uncategorically state the Book of Mormon is not historical. <laughs> yeah. So you're right. That's Nail in the coffin. Um. No, no, previous slide. 
Yeah, the previous one, you, Bill, can you read that second one that he has from Mosiah 24, 4 and 7? And before you do that, can I just make a, the observation here that in both of your pictures, John and Bill, your little screens, you have something in common in the background. And what you both have in common is hundreds of books. Yeah. Which you would expect to find in a literal, literary, literate society. Yes. Now, yes. there's none on my wall. That's because I don't do anything but watch YouTube. You're a lawyer. You have corpses under your desk. Yes, absolutely. I know where they're buried. And I can do all that on my computer. But really, yes, I mean, we're a literate society. You've got tons of books. How many people have books in their homes? How many books and writings are, I mean, it's millions and millions. And to expect that we would have a society like ours, which is in that way similar to what's represented in the Book of Mormon, disappear in every single book and every single page of the millions and millions of books and writings that exist in our culture. It's a very good point, R. It's, it's hard to imagine that happening. There Remember, too, I mean... Yes. Mormonism, the Book of Mormon and Mormon theology and the Mormon narrative, it imposes like the Book of Mormon is one small piece of this record. There's supposed to be all these plates that were written by all these people, um, all these prophets from generation to generation pass this literate technology down to their children who pass it to their children who pass it to their children. Benjamin's handing the speech out uh, at his sermon to everyone in the in the faith community. And we don't have a single thing with writing on it that that com that that communicates to us that they had this technology. Again, it's not just yeah. That, so right, this is the point I, I'm making. But it's not just the writing and the text we're missing. Remember, literacy is a well that creates social structures around it. So if you have a fully literate society. For a thousand years, not only should you be finding all kinds of texts, uh, but you should be finding uh, social institutions built around those texts. Things, um, well, being that the civilization is monotheistic, you should be finding all sorts of uh, churches with monotheistic art and texts. Right. Uh, even in the uh, cathedrals where most people in the Middle Ages had limited writing skills, you you have a local church in every village that has texts and uh, there's texts on the walls. There's art on the walls. Um, and and so, you, you, again, most of the texts that survive out of history are economic texts. We should have we should have tens of thousands of contracts and receipts written, written in an alphabetic script. Ten, mm -hmm. I mean, everywhere there's trade, there would be a, a record and we got nothing. Right. And this isn't just theory on your part, because the one that I read before, Helaman chapter three, verses 13 through 15, tells us that there are many, many records and that the Book of Mormon itself is a hundredth part of all the records that are kept and it goes through their shipping their building of ships building of temples dissensions preaching prophecies and they have been kept chiefly by the nephites there are many books and many records of every kind where are they what yeah. happened to them 
and how come nobody's ever found any of these? And I can hear the apologists now. I mean, they like to do this thing where they say that Mesoamerica's this hot climate and things would deteriorate faster. And hence, we shouldn't be surprised that we don't find a metal sword or we don't find uh, a, a book, for instance. But we should find something written on something. Like it should be somewhere. It should be on a pottery shard. It should be on a, a temple wall because we love to put replica. Uh, replicated uh, concepts of the Mesoamerican temples as uh, the Nephite temples, they should be somewhere and I we got a, nothing. I have a slide for that in the, in the next couple of slides, but. Oh, hey, Bill, I, can you read Mosiah 24, four through seven? And King Laman appointed teachers of the brethren of Amulon in every land, which was possessed by his people. And thus the language of Nephi began to be taught among all the people of the Lamanites. But they taught them that they should keep their record and that they might write one to another. And thus the Lamanites begin to increase in riches and begin to trade one with another and wax great. You mentioned contracts. If they're trading, there's deals being made. There should be contracts. They have a written language. There should be tablets with this written on it. I, I included this quotation because one of the apologists' arguments is the Nephite writing was destroyed by the Lamanites. But in Mosiah chapter 24, King Laman is a Lamanite king over a large portion of the Lamanite territory. And Amulon is one of the priests of Noah. And a Amulon puts a teacher of the Nephite writing system in all the cities of the Lamanites and teaches them to read, write, and keep records. And then they begin trading and doing their commerce with the Nephite writing. So you can't say the Lamanites destroyed all the Nephite writing because the Nephite writing was used by all the Lamanites as well. <laughs> Everyone's using it. His writing okay? is my writing too. Uh, so so uh, Mosiah 24, that's 2nd century BCE, according to the timeline of the Book of Mormon. Helaman 3 is 1st century BCE, according to the timeline of the Book of Mormon. By the 2nd century BCE, both the Lamanite and Nephite civilizations are literate in using uh, an alphabetic script. Okay. And coming with that would be monotheism. Right. So, so we should be finding amongst Lamanites uh, monotheistic art, ritual. And, uh, you know, when we look in Mesoamerica, uh, we find only polytheism. So, I, this is a real problem. All and right. even in Helaman, uh, which is much later than Mosiah, the very last clause, and they have been kept chiefly by the right. Nephites. So who's the other people who are keeping these records less chiefly? <laughs> That'd be the Lamanites, I think. That's correct. Yeah. So yet you just can't say it was all destroyed by the Lamanites when they're using the same system. All right, next slide. All right. This is, uh, I, I don't know. Can one of you pull up 2 Nephi 29, 9 through 11? It probably okay. should be read because it's just juicy. 29, what was the verses? 9 through 11. It's, uh, Joseph good. Smith assumes that true religion is literacy. Um, and this is a very famous passage. It's on the uh, you know seminary list of to be memorized. Mm -hmm. um, can you oh, especially read that, 11, someone? for I command all men. Is it okay if I skip to 11, or do you want me to read 9 through 11? 
9 through 11. Uh, work is not, you know. Oh, wait. Oh, we're four words. Yeah, 10 and 11, I guess. Okay, because well, it talks about wherefore, because that ye have a Bible, here's the prophecy to the last days, yeah, right? Yeah, there you go. Uh, ye need not suppose that it contains all my words, neither need ye suppose that I have not caused more to be written. Why? Verse 11. For I command, now present tense, for I command all men, both in the east and in the west and in the north and in the south and in the islands of the sea, that they shall write it the words worse. which I speak unto them. For out of the books which shall be written, I will judge the world, every man according to their works, according to that which is written. Joseph Smith assumes that wherever there is a revelation of God, it is recorded in writing. Uh, now, remember, 98% of human history is oral. The next 1.5% writing uh, serves ritual. It's only at the very tail end that we get religion as literacy. <laughs> and yet, we are told that uh, in the islands, in the lands, throughout all of history, wherever God speaks, it is written and, and people will be judged out of the books. And we know what happens when prophets tell the people to keep a journal. People start keeping journals. Yes. We know what happens when the command goes forth to write things down. Good Mormons write things down. It's the same thing that good Nephites would do, right? They would write things down. All right, we can go back to that slide. I'll, I'll go through this quickly so that we can tidy up. Um, Omni, uh, without the written scriptures, the Mulekites quickly fell into apostasy. They make a point that because they didn't bring the written record, the brass plates, they did not have the correct religion. We just read Second Nephi, Messiah. Without writing, the Nephites would have lost the true religion. The Lamanites are illiterate and thus do not have the through 14, Abinadi teaches from the written scriptures. He lays the scriptures before the priests of Noah. Right. So which means that religion is portable. It's being carried around by scripture. And he quotes to them Isaiah and the Ten Commandments. Uh, Alma 18, Alma teaches the Lamanites from the scriptures, uh, which have been kept since the days of Lehi. So all of uh, religion, prophecy and record keeping, it's all necessary. Thirty seven records is necessary to keep people living the correct religion. The primary primary cultural law is in literate record keeping. And I really like when Jesus speaks, all the teachings of Jesus must be written down. He commands them, write my words down so that they may go into the Gentiles and be converted from the written record. And third Nephi 20, Jesus commands the people to search the scriptures that are in front of them. So like that Messiah verse that you quoted, RFM, everyone, he assumes everyone's got the scriptures and can read them. <laughs> If I can just take this and make a simple analogy, the, the feeling I get about Joseph Smith when it comes to the Book of Mormon is that he steps out of his house or his cabin in the morning. He looks around him at his environment. He sees horses. He sees swine. There's barley in the fields. And he seems to make this assumption that everything that exists in his culture at that time has existed basically forever before this or at least certainly back to 600 BC, if not uh, Jaredite times. So I think he's doing the same thing with this whole idea of a literate society. Why would he think that any society would be any different than the society in which he's grown up in? He That's doesn't correct. know any different kind of society. 
obviously he has the Bible and he's well versed in the Bible and he can see that these people had literacy. So why would it not make absolute sense to him that people anciently in the, Mer the Americas could and would have the exact same type of literate society? That's correct. And the bottom line is uh, orality studies begins in the 1960s. Ethnographers only in the past century began peeling back layers and saying, wait a second. Uh, most of history wasn't literate. We made, everyone made that assumption that Joseph Smith made, except Joseph Smith recorded it in a book of scripture and said, this is an ancient record. And he's making all the wrong assumptions about that society. Um, next slide. All right. Well, uh, this is just a quick comparison. We do have Mesoamerican texts and they exist within the secondary oral world. Hold on, hold on a minute. Yes. There are Native American texts that did come forth that were kept by the people. In other words, here's what I'm saying. Book of Mormon tells us all over the place that there were writings and yet we don't get any of them. But what we but what we do get is that there are Native American cultures whose written records do make it and exist and we have them. They just don't represent the sort of culture the Book of Mormon says exist. Correct. And there's really only one or very closely associated cultures, and these are the Mayans, correct? Yeah, I mean, writing, you have a dozen different writing systems. Uh, Zapotec is 500 BCE. Olmec, probably precursor. Uh, the Mayan has the most writing that has survived because they had the most cities. Um, and, and, and while 99% of it has been lost because they're, writing we have thousands of examples of mayan script so there are other scripts but it all occurs in mesoamerica it doesn't occur in south or north america is there any difference between the mesoamerican text from the time period of the book of mormon and the book of mormon text itself that's what's on our screen here mesoamerican text i mean you get a lot we call of call it a segue in the biz <laughs> You get a lot of victory stealers. There's a lot of war scenes. That's a preeminent occupation, preoccupation of Mayan culture. Um, but their religious texts are, again, rituals, cosmology, astrology, calendric. You, um, the way they keep history is on uh, royal stelas. So a king would erect three, five, seven, nine stelas, nine feet tall. And those are big uh, it, rocks with writing cards. Big rocks, cards in big them, right? rocks, and they would uh, put a picture of themselves on it, and they would almost all the stealers have three things on them: a date, a place, an event. Okay, and the event is what the stela is commemorating. So the birth of the king, a date, and where he was born. That's one stela. Next stela: um, when he got married, because that was a, a political uh, treaty. Uh, date, place, uh, a war that he won, date, place, uh, a ritual that he did for the city, date, place. That is Mayan history making, is, is these episodic royal stelas. Um, so, you know, you get sacred narrative, ritual. And the Book of Mormon gives us objective history, Isaiah, allegory, sermons, letters, wars, monotheism, two completely different Two completely different thought worlds, two completely different cosmovisions, and the right never existed in the left. Okay, next slide. And while apologists would have us believe that it's just, we shouldn't expect records like this to make it, 
outside of the Book of Mormon records made it. Outside the, of the Book of Mormon the, records made it. Yeah. They're those kind of records. It's not the correct kind of records. Right. So uh, what the Book of Mormon tells us, Nephites are a fully literate society with a reductive alphabetic writing system. They should have library schools, theaters. We should have thousands, if not tens of thousands of texts. If less than 1% survives in a fully literate society, 10 to 20% literate, you're going to have writing on pottery, tablets, codices, walls, mural, steel, palace tombs, clay, wood, clay, stone, textiles. We have none of that. Uh, you're going to have letters, inventories, contracts, receipts, decrees, treaties, literature. Your religion is literate. You're going to have scriptures, sermons. You know, the Book of Mormon is a sermon culture. There's no sermon culture in these societies pre-Columbian. No, they don't go out and teach sermons. They go out and dance a ritual. Uh, histories. Again, they don't do that. Monotheistic art. Semitic names and traditions. You know, 80% of the names in the Book of Mormon are Hebrew or Hebrew-esque, which, which means that your leaders, your generals, uh, have Hebrew names, which represents the lingua franca of your society. What your leaders are named represents the language everyone's speaking and everyone's writing, which means that for a thousand years, we have a fully literate Hebrew-speaking people <laughs> creating millions of texts. Boy, that's... Uh, and finally, um, yeah, we don't have to, it's already 810, so we don't have to get into this. But another bizarre thing is one way cultures keep a cultural memory. Well, actually, all cultures keep a cultural memory through ritual. And that ritual is calendric. For example, the United States of America celebrates the 4th of July every year to celebrate the founding of the country. It happens on a specific day, and we do specific things, even though it's been reduced to barbecues and fireworks. It's a ritual date celebrating a cultural event. This is how all societies do it. For 500 years, the Nephites kept their calendar from when Lehi and Nephi left Jerusalem. Did you notice that? Whenever they give a year, they say it's this many years from when Lehi and Nephi left Jerusalem. So that is their cultural memory that they are uh, putting into ritual in a calendar. Okay? that Their calendar is based off that date. We know that because that's the date they keep giving every time they uh, cite a year. Right. Do you understand? Yes. Which means the entire culture is celebrating when a people left a foreign land across the Great Sea. One, that means they know there's a land across the sea. So why aren't they selling there? Why aren't they selling back? Right? But but two, um, we should find calendars then uh, based off this kind of conception. This uh, mm -hmm. cultural ritual, by the way, is rooted in history. Right? The cultural rituals of most societies are either agriculture agricultural or mythological this one is based off a historical event people living leaving jerusalem so again truth is history the calendar is based off a historical event um and so it, it, just little details like that are problematic they, they they don't make sense so if i'm understanding you correctly the book of mormon is not only out of place the book of mormon is out of time yeah that's true all right next slide 
Okay, this is uh, just uh, some of the responses that I hear apologists make. Um, Apologetic number one, we don't know what to look for. Uh, We might be looking at Nephite history without recognizing it. The Nephites adopted the material culture of the surrounding cultures. And therefore, um, you know, we might be looking at a Nephite artifact when we're looking at the iconography in Mesoamerica, but we just wouldn't know. Um, this is profoundly wrongheaded. First off, uh, the Nephites didn't adopt the material culture of the surrounding cultures. What we just read in Mazaya was the surrounding cultures adopted the material culture of the Nephites. <laughs> right. Why would somebody coming in with superior culture and superior technology adopt the inferior culture and technology right. of the peoples Why- around them? Why would you move from right to left instead of left to right on his on his bar earlier? Yes, exactly. <laughs> so, but Makes we no know sense. exactly what we're looking at when we look at Mesoamerican iconography, texts, um, art, architecture, temples. We're looking at that oral uh, secondary orality. We're looking at a world that's constructed using agricultural rituals, communal rituals, uh, astrological rituals. Uh, this is how they're maintaining their society. That's exactly what we're looking at. We are and not so we, finding. Yes. I'm sorry. You were going to say, I think, what I was going to ask. So what you're saying is then we can look at these. We can see that these are from a secondary orality society. And therefore, we can know this is not Nephite artifacts because Nephite artifacts would come from a literate society. Correct. Correct. So Bingo. this apologetic does not hold up. I keep hearing it. We have a clip so everybody can hear it. Yeah. In case well, somebody hasn't heard it or thinks we're making this up, this is a clip from Brant Gardner when he was on with uh, the Murph, Mormonism and the Murph, the fellow on the, the right side there who's listening intently to Brant Gardner say exactly what it is that Dr. Lenwald just talked about. And I just want to note for the audience the sound is really low. So if this is the moment, if you want to either turn your sound up, uh, or put your ear a little closer to the speaker, but here we go. The thing about archaeology and the Book of Mormon is that what you would expect of a text written in 1830, which is prior to the time when most of this archaeology was even begun, 30, is that the longer you go with history, with archaeology, the worse that text would get. The more things would crop up, say, yeah, no, but that was weird. could have fit its time period. But once the time period of creation was over and you start getting more information to learn about what that history was, take any history that was written at any time period and you will start finding how, you know, find out that later research invalidates parts of that history because we learn more, we know more. And so if this were a text written in 1830, it should have, frankly, it should have been debunked a long time ago. Let me stop right there for a second, Bill. This is a two-minute clip, but I just got to respond with a memo to Brant Gardner, who's a wonderful person. I have no beef with him. But when he says this old trope about the Book of Mormon, and since it came off, off the press in 1830, the more we learn about Mesoamerica, the more we learn about ancient America, the the more the Book of Mormon lines up with that. And that's different than what we would expect to happen. We would expect that as we learn more about what really happened anciently in the Americas, that the Book of Mormon would be more and more disproven and more out of harmony with what it is that we learn. Here's the memo. The Book of Mormon has been debunked a long time ago. 
And frankly, the more we learn about ancient America, the more obviously the Book of Mormon is not a product of that culture and time. And I think what we're talking about tonight is just another example, although a huge, I mean, like an exhibit A kind of smoking gun example of exactly that kind of thing. Your thoughts, John or Bill? I just want to say to the point where now the prevailing view among apologists such as Richard Bushman and Patrick Mason and Terrell Givens is that Joseph Smith is pooling 19th century material and he's an eclectic aggregator putting it all together and they no longer expect to see an ancient text, at least not entirely, and they're beginning to say it almost uh, as a minority that they would expect to find any ancientness to the to the text. Even Michael Ash, and I say even only because he's been such a prominent apologist for the the fair Mormon crowd and written a number of books. His most recent book, or at least the one I, I remember most recently, might have been a year ago, is where he's advocating this theory now that the Book of Mormon is not divinely inspired so much as it is a joint project between Joseph Smith and God. And all the stuff that looks 19th century, well, that's not the God part. That's the Joseph Smith part. And the other, I don't know what, 1% of the Book of Mormon that's not 19th century, obviously that's the God part. That's where God helped. So yeah, this is quite uh, predominant. And that is the way things are going in the Mormon apologetic community, going toward this loose translation, going toward it's a 19th century product, but we can explain to you why that is. Instead of saying, no, this really is an ancient product. So I, you know, Brant Gardner, I think he's swimming against the current on this particular argument. It, it feels like we're not far from the church itself and, and its apologists having to move to the Book of Mormon. Whatever Joseph was doing, the rock in the hat was a catalyst as well, just like the Book of Abraham, that whatever we ended up with almost certainly had nothing to do with what was actually on the plates. Right. Your thoughts, Dr. Lendl. And if you have any thoughts, please say them. But other than that, we're about halfway through this two-minute clip, and I did want to help Brant Gardner understand that the Book of Mormon was debunked a long time ago. Yeah. For those who believe it, yes, it hasn't been debunked. For those who believe it, it will never be debunked. But this is like a person who believes in the Urantia book coming forward and saying, well, the Urantia book has never been debunked. All okay. I can say is I just so what? Yeah, I, I profoundly disagree with what he just said. The more we learn, uh, the less the Book of Mormon, uh, it, it's demonstrably not historical. It, it didn't happen. I, See, I the church's own apologist. One, the church's own apologist yeah. agree with you. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Keep playing. <laughs> yes, now for the part about we can't tell uh, if we're looking at Nephite artifacts because our museums they could be full of them and we wouldn't know it yeah put your ears close to the speaker again here we go i, I do need to say this about people who say there's no archaeological evidence they say that because they're not really familiar with what archaeological evidence is so they've heard that from someone and they repeat it but they don't really know you know where it may what it means or whether the person who first said it knew anything about archaeology there, there are reasons why we don't have something where we could say, yeah, this is Nephite. And you remember we talked about material culture, where mm -hmm. we're all adopting the material culture around us. Um, uh, John Clark, who is a, a very well-known, well-respected uh, Mesoamericanist. Um, and Mormon apologist. Said that, yeah, we have Nephite artifacts all over the place. You know, there's Nephite archaeology. We have Nephite artifacts. 
and they're in you know the finest museums in the world. We just call them Maya or Soke or something else because there's nothing on them that labels them Nephite. We don't know what you know what a, a Nephite anything would look like. You know, we know their religion, but religion evaporates. It, you know, without a text, you don't know what the religion was. But that's the problem. There are no texts. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's a problem. <laughs> so this is something that I just uh, really hit me hard when I was talking with you, uh, Dr. Lenwall, is that I've heard this kind of apologetic before. And frankly, this is a thing that finally forced me out of Mormon apologetics because more and more it seemed that the apologists were forced into the corner of having to make an argument from silence. And basically what they're saying is, well, we can't prove that we're right, but you can't prove that we're wrong. And so they try and uh, build a wall that they can hide behind and be protected against an assault on their, their beliefs. And this is what I see uh, Brant Gardner and others who say this kind of thing about the museums could be full of Nephite artifacts and we wouldn't know it. They think that they have put themselves in a position where they cannot be assailed, that they can at least call it a draw at the end of the day. And yet, according to what you have told us tonight in your studies and research, even that position saying that we can't tell if these are Nephite artifacts just by looking at them, that is 180 degrees wrong. Yes. I, I, again, I just profoundly disagree with Brant Gardner said. Uh, we know what archaeology... <laughs> yeah, what was that whole thing about? I didn't understand we that know at what all. what archaeology is. In fact, one of the leading uh, Mesoamerican archaeologists I read, Michael Coe, um, un uncategorically, there's no evidence for the Book of Mormon. Well, obviously, he doesn't know what archaeology means. I, again, yeah. I, so <laughs> I, you're right. They've, they've painted themselves into a corner where they argue from the absence of evidence. And, you know, the upside is there's always more absence of evidence to argue from. <laughs> so <laughs> you'll, you'll never run out of that. But, um, <laughs> but when you look at the evidence, uh, then you're, you have huge problems. Uh, so, you know. So is I this just to say that what we titled this, I'm sorry, Bill, but that what we titled this whole program, does the Book of Mormon refute itself? What is your answer to that question? Yes, it, it's, uh, it's, 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 it's totally anachronistic out of time and place. It's a self-refuting document. Yes, it is. Wow, Bill. Just to note, from here on out, because of episodes like, again, John, you are on with Mormonish. I just want to note this, by the way. If, if folks really enjoyed this conversation, uh, uh, Landon and Rebecca uh, had John on for multi-hours, uh, longer than what we've covered, going into, I think, probably uh, greater detail, in, at least in various facets, about what we're talking about tonight. Please check that out. But I just want to note what Brant Gardner said about people just re restating some trope about uh, – there's no such thing as Nephite artifacts after tonight, you can now go to Brant Gardner and go, no, no, no. I actually know what kind of artifacts we should find. And I know what kind of artifacts we find. We find artifacts from a orality culture and we should find artifacts from a literate culture. And now Brant Gardner no longer can spout that nonsense. Well, he can't. <laughs> And he will. And he will. 
but I, yes, that exactly. Once again, Bill sums it up. I don't know where we're at. Uh, we are two hours into this. So let's we were going to take a couple phone calls. Is that okay? Or did you want to sum up? Did you, or how many more slides are there? I, we can, we can be done. We can, uh, I don't know how many more slides. I, there's another slide of, of, we haven't found it yet. Apologetic number two. Um, mm. We can, I mean, we can go over that. Um, well, I hear that all the time. I heard that back in the 1980s, you know, it's, yeah. it's Mesoamerica and there's jungles and we haven't yeah. found all, we just found, they just found another, you know, ancient village the other day. It's like every 80 day. 80% of something. this hasn't even been discovered yet. 93% right. of this hasn't been discovered yet. And Look, the Mormon and the Nephites are in that undiscovered 80%. What do you say yeah. to that, Dr. Lundell? Here's uh, go to the next slide. Here's the point I want to make on this. Um, history is fractal. Uh, you know, look, ancient history is a thousand piece puzzle and we've got 20 pieces. That, that's not hyperbole. We have very little uh, data. Most of it is lost. And so people therefore live in all the blank spaces and say it's possible. But the point I want to make is the 20 pieces we have are not two dimensional puzzle pieces. They're fractals. Sorry, self-replicating geometric uh, invariant form. Oh, that makes what it clear. we have, what we have, uh, <laughs> in the pieces we have, reflect what we don't have, and what we don't have is reflected in the pieces we do have. Okay. Bottom line, we we're missing tons of history, but the pieces we have, one piece is information systems. Okay, that's one piece. So we can take that piece and say, how do cultures transmit information? And we can look at how oral cultures do it, how uh, secondary oral cultures do it, how literate cultures do it, how the printing press does it, how manuscripts do it. And then we build a model. And then we look at all the blank spaces and say, well, we know that they had this kind of writing. So therefore, they probably had this kind of thought structure. Okay. That's so that's what historians do. That's what archaeologists do. You take the pieces you have, you build a model for the pieces you don't have. And what that prevents you from doing is saying the aliens built the pyramids. Right. We, we don't know how they built the pyramids. So we could say the aliens did it. Well, sure enough, a lot of people say that. But our models, based off the pieces we do have, uh, tell us that human beings did it. Uh, while we don't know how they did it, we can describe the civilization in which they lived. And then we try to work out how they did it. So the bottom line is, um, sure enough, 99% of Mesoamerican history is gone. You're not going to find Nephite civilization in the next 10% of archaeology done or in the next 50% of archaeology done because you're not going to find it. And the reason why you're not going to find it is because the 20 pieces we have have created certain models and we know what to expect. There's all kinds of new finds that can happen, but we take our one piece of information systems, we look at literacy and orality, we know exactly what to look for, uh, we, we know the cultures that do have writing, what kind of writing that's serving, we know the cultures that don't have writing, how their cultures develop, uh, so, yeah, sure enough, uh, we don't know the name of their gods. We don't know uh, many of the rituals. We don't know the names of the people. 
most of that is gone. But uh, the, the historical models uh, are pretty good. So bottom line is, I study the Fremont. They're, they're, they're a non-literate culture. Uh, their villages were 20, 40, 50 people. Okay? And they're almost invisible to history. And yet, we can identify Fremont culture over and over and over again. We, can, uh, we find their pit houses. We find their rock imagery. We find their uh, pottery. And we say, okay, uh, here's a village, 40 people. Um, they hunted, they gathered, uh, they traded. We, here, here are the trade artifacts. We can trace them to neighboring villages and even neighboring cultures. Uh, and then we develop a model as to how these people lived. And there's only 20 or 40 people per village, right? You're telling me that uh, people, a uh, civilization with millions of people, that's fully literate, we can't find. We just haven't found them yet. I'm sorry. That's not, that's not how it works. That's not how archaeology works. I, I disagree with Brandt. It, I, I'm not sure he understands what archaeology is, if that's his argument. In, in any case. Um, I've got a, yeah. a two-part question. Has there ever been a, has a orality-based society ever transitioned into a literate society and then regressed back to an orality society? Uh, not that I know of. Because it seems like it would take something because any, because the other thing we say here in apologetics is that this small group of Nephites, as you guys said, were absorbed into the larger culture, but almost, almost essentially you could guarantee that the surrounding culture, if that's such a thing. And again, the argument I would want to throw out is if we really take the Book of Mormon at its word, those people show up completely alone to an empty place, and that empty place was told to stay empty, to be prepared for them if you read the Book of Mormon and take it at its word. But if there was a existing group of people much larger than the Nephites, they would have perceived that the Nephites had technology that was not something they had come up with yet, and they would have gone to that rather than the literate society regressing back to orality. That's yeah. correct. They would have matched the technology. The yeah. Nephites become the leaders. Yeah. Yep. For a thousand years. Or at least viceroys. Yeah. Yeah, the point with this uh, slide is if we can track uh, cultures that are 20 to 40 people in a village over centuries, we should be able to track uh, a Nephite civilization that's fully literate with millions of people. And the fact that we don't find it, uh, your, the argument that we just haven't found it yet is just, it fails. Um, it's like a Where's Waldo book with no Waldo. <laughs> Relate it this way. I mean, it's one thing to think, for instance, like in, in any kind of conspiracy theory, JFK or Flat Earth or Bigfoot. Bigfoot's a good one. We, we have some distant photos, you know, maybe we got a footprint here, but we haven't found him yet. And, and until you do, it is by far the less rational decision to go with the conclusion that requires some future evidence to still come forward. In this moment, with the evidence laid out before us, the most rational decision is that the Book of Mormon is a 19th century text. Not according to Rod Meldrum's brother, Jeff. Yeah, well... Thought I'd just mention it. Or uh, the church history department guy who's in charge of... Uh, 
of hoaxes. The hoax. Jared expert. Halverson. No, 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 no. Not Jared Halverson. It isn't. No, it's not Gerald. Hel- Hel- it's not him. I think it is. It's the director of the church history department. He's also the hoax expert, but he's a believing member of the LDS church. And he doesn't seem to understand how hoaxes really work. So I don't think I've that got guy $5 should be doing here that. that says it's Jared Halverson. Uh, I'm a hundred percent sure it's not. Then let's make it a hundred. <laughs> I'll bet you a hundred dollars. Done. Okay. <laughs> I think we're done. Uh, if you want to. Take calls or, uh... <laughs> okay. So you can look it up. And, and if you, if you want to announce your failure publicly or privately to me after the show, whichever you choose. So. Um, <laughs> Keith hey, Erickson. That's what I said. You no, you said Jared Halverson. I said Keith Erickson. Oh boy, you changed your story. <laughs> you, what are you, you talking about? It's, I think the you must... thing is this is recorded. <laughs> <laughs> you know something, and people can play it back. Okay, all right, I owe you a hundred bucks. Buy me a it, steak the next time. I feel like together. you suckered me somehow. But I have a question for John Lundwall. You owe me a hundred bucks for just having me listen to this. <laughs> okay, Bill. Bill, you pay him the hundred bucks. I'll pay you the hundred bucks, and we'll all be even. I go first, though, right? And hopefully, you know, John will just give me a hundred dollar gratuity. Oh wait, I give you a hundred bucks. How did this happen? Well, that way we all stay the same. But I do have a question for you. Six six two six six seven six six six. Seven or six six two Mormons is the the number to call in. I did have a question asked you that was given to me by another listener in advance of the show, and they just wanted to know since you have been on Mormonish a number of times already, apparently you're going to be on there more. You're going to become a fixture on Mormonish. But since you posited these kinds of ideas and they've been in public for weeks now, have you gotten any pushback from apologists to what it is you've had to say? Uh. A uh, few. Uh, there's been, a, yeah, a few people who've uh, argued with me about um, writing systems, uh, mostly that uh, it. I can't argue that my. I said that the Book of Mormon is anachronistic. A tight translation is impossible, and a loose translation is an act of violence. So um, I've gotten pushback on the loose translation bit. They they want to still argue that, you know, I keep going in and out. I'm sorry about that. That's okay. We just um, need you for like a second, and I think we get most of it. Uh, they want to argue that th- there's still a, a room in the uh, in the inspired translation in order to get a 19th century worldview in the Book of Mormon out of an ancient. Uh, What's the most rational text? decision? Why? Why try to salvage it by creating mental gymnastics and loopholes? Because it's all you've got left. And by the way, the Book of Mormon imposes itself as a tight translation. Look at all the unique words that Brian Hales would like us to be aware of that the Book of Mormon creates. Uh, Gid Gadoni, uh, Mahanri, and Moriankamer, right? Uh, the, the Book of Mormon imposes k- k- uh, kulams and kur- kumams or whatever. Kurams um, and kumans? You cannot loosely translate proper no. nouns. Okay, I think I just no. won my hundred bucks back. <laughs> Kuralams and kumans. <laughs> no, that's uh, 200 bucks. Okay, so anyway. In the tra- uh, but the yeah, way, also and the so when, when, when Brian Hales asked, where did all the words come from? What it actually ends up happening is that all the words from the Book of Mormon, where did they come from? Well, they came from a culture that was not extant in the Americas during the time period of the Book of Mormon. That's where all the words came from, Brian. 
wherever they came from, they didn't come from the Americas between 400, uh, 600 BC to 480 or BCE and CE. That's correct. So I, you know, either it happened or it didn't happen. And if, uh, I, right, you can't get a loose translation. If, if the culture is fully literate, as it's described in the Book of Mormon, you don't need a loose translation. They're writing everything down uh, as objective historical facts and as sermons and as doctrine. That's all written. There's no, there's no need for a loose translation if you're dealing from one literate culture into another literate culture. If the plates have on it uh, writing from a secondary oral culture, then you begin dismantling that world and perverting it into what you create in your world. So that's why a loose translation, in my view, is an act of violence. It, 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 it destroys the first thought world. In turn, you could do that to any culture, right? Any secondary oral culture. They all yeah. believed in Jesus. And if on the plates it is a secondary orality being transcribed there that Joseph Smith had to loosely translate into something that would be intelligible to his audience, why is it that what he translates loosely from this secondary orality ends up describing this culture as being literary? Yes. Or literate and not secondary orality. Correct. Yeah, it doesn't work. No, no matter how you turn the Rubik's cube, it doesn't work. So are there any calls, Bill? Yeah, we've got three of them in the, in the call bank. So, and hopefully these will be questions related to what, uh, professor Lenmos talked about tonight. Yeah. I don't think James Raphael's calling, so we should be good. So oh, too bad. Uh, all right. So I think the first caller is Aaron. Aaron, are you there? I am. All can right. you hear me? I can, my friend, go ahead. You are on with John Lundwall Do and radio. Free Dr. Mormon. Lundwell. Uh, yes, love you guys. Love everything that's going. I, one thing that caught my uh, attention was the idea of technical writing as well, um, specifically shipbuilding and and the building of ships. And and I, I know we've talked a lot about religious, the, the evolution of religious writing. I just wondered how technical writing, where does it come into that model? Yeah, that's a... Good question. Actually, uh, most uh, technical trades don't get recorded. They're the secret of the trade. And so it's it's passed down uh, from uh, master to apprentice in all these societies. That's why we don't have blueprints of the Great Pyramid. That's why we have no idea how they built it, because no one wrote it, right. wrote how, how down uh, wrote down how they built it. So um, but you're right. That passage says that they have records of the building of ships and uh, shipbuilding and architecture, the, the building of buildings. Um, you know, what's that look like? Uh, that's a good catch. It's a very good catch. And I'm not sure they perfected that even today. Cause when I get these little manuals that come along with how to put something together, I can't make heads or tails out of it. I think uh, Ikea instructions are written in Mayan. <laughs> <laughs> If not Sanskrit. I know there's a human sacrifice at the end. <laughs> no, wait, there's a human sacrifice at the end of what? This sounds like it might be worth watching. Oh, no, building anything from Ikea. By the time I'm done, I have a half malformed piece of furniture and a human sacrifice. <laughs> <laughs> All right. You guys ready for the next call? Yes, sir. All right. I don't have a name here, so I'll just ask. Caller, what's the name? Uh, hi, my name is Jenny. 
Jenny. Welcome to Mormonism Live. You're on with John Ludwell. What's uh, what's on your mind? Oh, well, thanks for all you guys do. Uh, I'm a monthly donor and Appreciate that. listener. And totally into you guys. Um, but yeah, I, this was one of my, as they, I guess, call it these days, self-breakers. I left like 20 years ago, um, after I got kicked out of BYU-Idaho for the second time. Um, but I was like an East Coast raised Mormon and, you know, seminary church classes all through college and stuff like that before leaving. And I, like, when the Book of Mormon came up, it was always weird to me, like, where are the artifacts, you know? And if this was, like, a literal civilization, you know, where's the visual representation? Where's the artwork? Where, you know, is the pottery? Where's the worship sites? Where are the artifacts from war, the text, you know, the logs of economy? you know, religious text, like where, if this was like a diary, basically, of one guy, where, like, where the rest of the stuff went, and, you know, like, we're shown stuff in the pictures, like, in the Book of Mormon, that, like, they had stuff, they had, like, written flags, and everything, and we're told that they had written text, you know, and you guys said it, like, goes back, it re- they, like, revert civilization where they go to, like, a non-written language, basically, where when, when Lamanites, like, lose it all and become stupid or something, you know? <clears throat> but I was told in the 90s, I remember asking, like, my dad as a kid, like, well, why haven't they found anything? Why haven't they dug anything up? And the answer I was given was like one of like miracles kind of in that heavenly father must have like taken it up, like removed it so that we couldn't find it that way. Like it wouldn't, it would be way too easy to believe this if we had the artifacts. And so that was the answer. I was like, I remember given that answer that, you know, heavenly father, you know, the ultimate trickster, you know, he made all the um, evidence disappear. Right. Kind of like the city of Enoch in a way. Um, that's how it was described to me. And I don't know if other people heard that, but then, you know, and then there's also the whole story that, oh, they haven't found it yet, but they will, or that the Mesoamerica is, but it's the Lamanites when they reverted back and started idol worshiping. And that's why it's not like coinciding with necessarily the Book of Mormon because they lost it you know but anyway my question was um yeah have you guys heard that same you know theory i've heard that before my father-in-law has spouted that a few times where god just made it all vanish just like he took the plates away like you said moroni taking the plates away it's just like that i mean god god look it's hard enough to believe in mormonism as it is why does god excuse me why does god need to trick us Yes. Why does he need to trick us? Isn't Mormonism hard enough to believe as it is without making it harder? That's what I was trying to say. I mean, what is this deal that God has? And I I think that we do hear that, but I think that tonight's discussion, Jenny, I think tonight's discussion takes us even beyond that. And I think you understand that. We're not talking about what exists today. We're talking about what existed during Book of Mormon times, and they just didn't have 
There's nothing. There's nothing that has been found that's reflective of the literary society that the Book of Mormon describes amongst millions of people. Nor will Nahum? it be found. Nor will it be found. It's not there. And yeah. I just want to say that uh, caller, thank you. She she understands archaeology. Uh oh. She, she understands what to look yeah, for. Yeah, I um, <laughs> I minored in art history and call when I went back to college, oh. I went to ISU. And I minored in art history, and I had left the church and read a lot of books to justify leaving. I uh, knew like what I was doing. I knew I understood it, and um, I remember I was taking a communications one on one class, and because I had to make up for all of my religion classes that wasted <laughs> my time and money and brain, you know, space. and. But my um, argumentative essay or argumentative speech that I decided to give for my speech class was um, how the Book of Mormon is fictional. And one of my, like, uh, one of my sources of evidence was that there is no evidence and that there was no written language. There was no civilization, like, found in which there were hundreds of thousands of people and there was this written language of their religion and couldn't have happened and I like stood in front of the whole class at um in Pocatello and there were a good few people in that classroom who were like split halfway down their chairs by the time I finished that speech but mm. that was like back in 2008 you know so well thank you for the call I wish I still wow. had that yeah thank you guys for all that you do um you really like this was something that I never really so too much more into but you really like brought it to life in a way that um was really easy to understand and you know connect with love it thank, thank you. you jenny all credit for that goes to dr lundwall mm-hmm. <laughs> thanks for the call yeah well have a good night thank, yep, thank you thank call. you jenny and then uh, and then our last call here looks like maybe it is mark mark is that you is that your name it's my mom. My name's Ruth. Ruth. How are you, Ruth? Hi. How are you? Awesome. Uh, since the line was open, I wanted to call and uh, thank Professor Lundahl for this. This has been just exquisite. The slides were awesome. And RFM and Bill, I appreciate your classes. I, I call them classes. I appreciate your show. I look forward to it every week. Uh, I really don't have a question other than uh, early on, I followed Rob Meldrum, and uh, I have all the Heartland books and Rodney May, and uh, sort of held on to a little bit of that, thinking, oh, this is what the answer is. And then I found out that wasn't correct, and on November 5th, 2015, is when... We asked to have our names taken off of the roster of the church. We've been in the church for over 60 years. Mm. And uh, we've been to Mexico and climbed that one that one temple there. We've seen temple the blood hand marks on the walls. Uh, and I just, I just feel grateful for the ability that I have to attend a college class sitting in my armchair on a Tuesday on a Wednesday evening and uh, I just love you guys and 
I'll try to put that into money. <laughs> Ruth, before so, you go, Maven's just reminding me. Ruth, uh, before you go, Maven's reminding me in our audience that you're the same Ruth from the very first short that actually Maven made yeah, it on I, behalf I of am. us. Well, how are you doing? It's yeah. so great to hear from you. I'm good. And I, like I say, I look forward to your class. I call it a class every Wednesday night. I, I don't even answer my doorbell hardly. Uh, it could be the J-dubs. I've learned so much. And I will be watching this exact show with the, with the words underneath it again so I can pause it and read it and understand it. Because it hurts so bad when I found out that the, that the church, the Mormon church, had been lying. And also, we're the ones that lost a son on a mission. So we doubled down, tried to, you know, do better so we'd be able, you know, because of all the dogma and all the rhetoric that we've been given, all the teachings. And when you're out there, you really are alone, unless you're in a group, you know. You really are alone in this this thing that comes over you about how all that you live for really wasn't true, you know. But if our lives went all the way around the Mormon Church, you know, everything, it was in everything, the LDS teaching. So... It fills my heart, and it makes me feel so good that I'm not going nuts. It never quite clicked. You know, never. But still, there it is. Thank, Thank you, you so much, Ruth. Very well said. And, and congratulations you, you know, about, yeah. on having your name removed. I just, what did you say? Go ahead, Oh, me? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Congratulations. Sure. I mean, on having your name removed. At least now, if you're going to, you know, make mistakes with your life, at least they get to be your own mistakes. Mm. That's right. And it's so much fun. It's so much fun to feel real and to not, yeah, feel real. So much fun to feel real and not have it heavy, you know, on your heart that you haven't done something today that you should have. You haven't prayed enough. You haven't, you know. And this is just such an awesome experience. So glad for you guys. So I'll let you go. I know you've had a long day, but thank you, Professor Lund Lundwall. And I'll be looking to see here for me again. Thank you, Ruth. And by the way, uh, do check out the live chat if you're not already, because already I'm seeing a lot of messages of support and solidarity with you being flashed up on the screen from the live chat. And I hope you're seeing those as well. I'm not tonight, but I will be. Okay. Well, well Donnie Lee Gringo is I saying, you. Ruth, you are enough just as you are. Do you have any others? That I know you flashed oh, a bunch of. Thank you for the call, Ruth. I, I just want to say these podcasts that uh, Bill and RFM do, they, they are the community. Um, they are the pamphlet of the Reformation. And uh, so I, I thank you, too, for doing what you do. And uh, finally, you know, one day the people who lied will be the lonely ones. And uh, you guys are. Thank you for that. Yeah. Thank you. Well, I think okay. we better just 
I okay. love you guys. I'll see you. Yeah, thank we you. We love you too, Bye. Ruth. Great you time. hang in there. We'll see you next week, okay? All right. All right. So thank you so much, Doctor. I go between Professor and Doctor. I think they're both correct. Dr. John Lund <laughs> Thank you, Dr. John Lundwall, for coming on tonight's show to talk about this very intriguing thesis that you have about the Book of Mormon being a self-refuting uh, document, that the Book of Mormon is out of place and out of time in the Americas. Bill, did you have anything else you want to say before I close off? Anything you want to say out loud? I went into this episode knowing kind of the ground we were going to cover, but I was I learned a lot tonight and was able to connect dots that I wouldn't have if this conversation hadn't occurred. And I'm just deeply grateful once again to have an episode where we have a conversation with an expert and talk about uh, why people shouldn't feel so much shame or guilt when they can't make this thing work. Yeah, very good. So I want to thank everybody else out there who's been watching. Tell your friends, like us, subscribe, do all those great things. Uh, give us a positive review. I'm actually just repeating things I hear other people say at the end of their podcast. I don't know what they mean, but they're supposed to help us with the logarithms, whatever those are. I think it might be like archaeology. But anyway, thanks again for watching. Join us next week, next Wednesday, same bat time, same bat channel.